Hello and welcome to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this episode, cities. What are the really fantastic ideas that are changing urban areas around the world? Where are they and how do they work? Finding the answers to this is the big idea behind WRI's Ross Prize for Cities. So we wanted to draw attention to the fact that actually a lot of good things are happening in cities and are happening right now. In this podcast, we'll hear from Kenya, Argentina, India, Mexico and the United Kingdom. What solutions have they found to the critical urban challenges of our time? Air pollution is an invisible killer. It's shortening thousands of lives every year, as well as permanently damaging the health of our children. The WRI Ross Centre Prize for Cities is the premier global award that shines a spotlight on transformative urban change. And the prize for 2020 to 21 is down to five finalists. Each is remarkable in its own way, and each is about innovative and scalable solutions to really difficult problems. I spoke to Anne Masson, WRI's global lead on the prize, about each one of the five. And you'll also hear some of the voices of those involved in the project. You can see and hear more from them at the website prizeforcities.org. But first, a simple question for Anne. What exactly does this prize involve? The WRI Ross Centre Prize for Cities, or Prize for Cities, is WRI's global competition to recognise the highest calibre of work in changing cities for the better. So making them more resilient, low carbon, uh, most of all doing this in an inclusive way that leaves no one behind. You know, there's a lot of um, bad news coming from cities and good news is actually often lost in the sea of bad news. Um, You know, traffic, congestion, pollution. Um, So we wanted to draw attention to the fact that actually a lot of good things are happening in cities and are happening right now. We don't really stop and take time to celebrate them and to elevate them and to share them around. A few things stand out about the prize. First is maybe very obviously it's a large cash prize. It's $250,000 for the grand prize winner and it's $25,000 for runners up and anyone can apply. So it's open to local governments, but also community groups and NGOs and businesses and also partnerships between all types of organizations. Is there a kind of unifying theme to this year's prize? I mean, obviously, over the last year and a half, we've had the the COVID pandemic has changed a lot of the ways in which um, cities have had to operate and, and also how they're, how they're viewing the future and how they want to organise themselves. Is that the organising principle or is there anything else there? The overarching theme of the prize is urban transformation. So we're really looking at projects that have transformed their cities as a whole. So besides impacting the lives of people at the project level, we're looking for large-scale change at the sort of institutional and city level. And this price cycle, 2020-21, we've invited submissions to the, the theme of climate and inequality. So we're looking for initiatives and projects that show us how to live and thrive in a changing climate by tackling climate change, but also urban inequality. For the Cities programme, for WRI's uh, Ross Centre for Cities, what is it about setting up a prize like this that actually helps you guys do your work more effectively? The reason we're doing the prize really is, of course, we want to elevate excellence in the field. So we want to you know, show that it's possible and that we can all agree that good things are happening. But I think what we're also looking for is to actually learn 
about what makes these exemplary initiatives around the world work, what makes them effective. You know, what are the dynamics of change in these projects to learn about these and then to disseminate the, the findings so that others can replicate them all around the world, as well as through the prize and, you know, related initiative that, that we're doing at WRI Cities to uh, create a space where people can connect to each other's experiences um, and share knowledge and, and practical tools to actually be change makers all around the world in their own right. Well, let's turn to the first of the finalists, which is Monterey in northern Mexico. There is this saying that if you want to have a great city, well, start a university and wait 200 years. Monterey is the country's third largest city and it's an important industrial hub. And like many cities in the world, it's been expanding rapidly. It's been growing outwards. And here we have car-centric development and, you know, urban policies that favored investment in new neighborhoods outside of the city center. So we've got sprawl. Even though the population doubled, the density has decreased dramatically and there's just been associated problems of air quality and declining tax bases. Here in particular, something else that's been going on is that there's a problem with drug-related violence. And in 2010, in 2010, two students at the local university were killed right outside the university gates. There was this big tragedy with two of our students coming out of campus and being killed in a crossfire. And that was a very tragic moment for the institution, obviously for the city, and it required that we think different about our position within the city. What's really interesting about it is that here we have a university, which is historic and prestigious, that has become a player in turning things around. When the tragedy happened on their doorstep, they had a basic decision. They considered leaving the area. But instead, they decided to go the other way entirely. And in 2014, they launched a district-scale regeneration initiative called Distrito Tech, which involved an area master plan and a serious infrastructure investment. Let's work with our community, with our neighbors, with the city, with the government to become a more dense, more compact place where we can solve many of the common issues of our life. They implemented it by involving local populations in the design and the priority setting, so residents and local businesses. And as a result, they improved the infrastructure, they redensified the area, new businesses opened, um, and they basically provided a new template for how area-based regeneration can work in Mexico. So in other words, they were fighting this uh, this tendency to just sprawl. There was this incident that happened that could have led them to really think, well, it's our time to move out. And instead, they decided to stay where they were to invest in the community and create something that was um, was very valuable in its own right and also set a almost a template, a way of doing things that, that others might be able to follow if they want to regenerate where they are rather than just follow this flight to the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really striking, this decision to stay. It's a really brave choice. And, you know, it wasn't a foregone conclusion by any means. Many others wouldn't have stayed. Besides, you know, the impacts that it has had on the local area, the population, it also has great symbolism because it shows us that one important way of measuring success in urban transformation is if people stay if they invest and build community capital, we can shift the perception that urban development can only be led and enacted by governments. Anyone can be a change maker. 
Many of these issues we're facing, a lot of cities in the world face. We need to put the best of our talents to move forward and to create an example that it can be done not only in Mexico, not only in Monterey, but in the world. And the second finalist is Ahmedabad in India. Ahmedabad, India, that's a city of uh, six million people. Again, it has grown very rapidly and um, as many as 20% of residents live in slums there. Urbanization in India and across the global south is very rapid. The risks of climate change are going to increase heavily on lives in concentrated urban communities, especially in slums and informal settlements. So slum communities are particularly vulnerable to climate impacts, such as heat waves and water scarcity, flooding, and in this case also vector-borne diseases. Even within these communities, women are often hit hardest. One thing to know about Ahmedabad is that it suffered a particularly bad heat wave in 2010 when over a thousand people died. This was a wake-up call that climate needed to be taken much, much more seriously than it previously had. What happened? What was the solution? So a group called the Mahila Housing Trust, or MHT, they'd been working in Ahmedabad slums for a really long time. And when they realized how serious climate change was becoming as an issue, they started integrating it into their programming in Ahmedabad slums. What we did is we developed a poor women-led model to reduce inequalities caused due to climate change. So they launched a program that trains women to conduct assessments of climate risk in their homes and in their communities. And then working in partnership with the local government, technology providers and academics, they co-developed climate resilient solutions for slums. You know, it's often simple things like water purifiers, rainwater harvesting systems, cool roofing solutions. We have created a roofing product which is made from recycled materials, which lowers the temperature by six to 10 degrees Celsius compared to alternatives. And these were solutions that, while known and available in the market, were not available on a slum community budget and in a format that actually works with the type of housing that exists in slums. If a woman is empowered, the entire benefits of the empowerment goes to the family, especially to their children, and they bring about an intergenerational change, which is very, very relevant, especially for climate change. And moving on to another place where uh, it's basically an informal settlement that we're talking about, which brings its own challenges, and that is Kibera in Kenya. Kibera is one of many informal settlements in Nairobi. Nairobi, Kenya, 4.7 million people, similar to Ahmedabad in that sense. Um, but here you have a city within a city called Kibera. So this is one of the world's largest informal settlements where almost 10% of the entire population of Nairobi lives. And here we've got a similar situation where almost half of the residents are vulnerable to extreme flooding from the local river. Partly there's poor drainage, sanitation infrastructure, poor housing, partly because the built environment is actually so dense and there's very few green spaces to absorb water and partly climate change is increasing rainfall rates during the rainy season. So there's actually just nowhere for the water to go. When it rained, it would be very difficult for us to even sleep because the flooding will get into the houses. So what was the solution? 
This is again an example that show you that shows you that urban change makers can come in all shapes and sizes. So in 2007, six students from the Harvard Graduate School of Design visited Kibera, um, and one of them was actually from Kibera, and formed the Conque Design Initiative or KDI, which launched the Kibera Public Space Projects. And what we have here is essentially at the heart of the approach is to reclaim existing spaces within the settlement, like dump sites and wastelands, marshy areas, and other of these kinds of spots, and convert them into high quality public spaces by involving the local residents in priority setting and connecting them into multifunctional uses that double as sanitation kiosks, flood protection, drainage, laundry facilities, and even playgrounds for local kids and small businesses to conduct their economic affairs. So as well as adding a bit of resilience, it also adds very valuable public spaces in, a, in the type of uh, settlements where such spaces might not otherwise exist. Yeah, and it's what's really important here, it's it's a story about how you can work in informal settlements to address climate change, because in informal settlements, residents often don't own the land. That's why they're called informal settlements. So there's land tenure issues and building there and investing in these spaces can be very risky because at any point in time, someone can come in and take the space away. So In any setting, changing anything from within, from the middle of the city is difficult, but even more so in informal settlements. So KDA has created a number of sites. There are 11 in total, and they spread across Kibera. The way KDI has worked with the local population has drawn the attention of key stakeholders at the metropolitan scale, so especially urban planners to the urgency and the possibility of building resilience and adaptation to climate change. And when you've worked in the space for a while, you know that this is a really important shift when the Metropolitan Authority is moving from simply reacting to problems and being in crisis management mode of what's happening in informal settlements again, to a very different form of governance that is much more proactive and much more anticipatory in spirit. This work is transformational, this work is saving lives, and this work is what needs to happen to ensure that Kibera is a place where children, women, and everyone else can thrive. Moving on from Kibera and informal settlements to something at what might be the other end of the scale, and that's London, obviously one of the most famous uh, and, and most renowned cities in the world. So of all our finalist cities, London, UK is probably the one that people are most familiar with. Everyone's heard of London. However, what many people may not realize about London is that the city has really, really terrible air quality. Worse than that, Londoners breathe toxic air every day, and it's the poorest Londoners who live in the areas most badly affected. Air pollution is an invisible killer. It's shortening thousands of lives every year, as well as permanently damaging the health of our children. They're actually part of about 90% of the world's population that is exposed to unsafe levels of pollution. So, you know, this is a rich city that has a lot in common with many less wealthy cities around the world in this sense. And it's a public health emergency. It's a social justice issue. And it's also a climate problem because air pollutants and greenhouse gas emissions in this case come from the same sources. So it's the combustion of fossil fuels from vehicles. What was the solution to this? I mean, I'm talking as someone who lived in London for quite a few years and cycled almost every day. 
And yeah, the choking pollution from the cars was often quite awful. What, what's the initiative that's been brought in to, to solve this? So what's happened um, is that since the post of London Mayor was created in 2000, consecutive London mayors have been trying to turn this pollution trajectory around. They've been supported behind the scenes by very dedicated and skilled civil servants in the Greater London Authority who've been continuously working on these topics. And when Sadiq Khan, when he was elected in 2016, he implemented the latest measure, the ultra low emission zone. It's essentially the world's largest clean air zone where the polluter pays. In April 2019, we launched the world's first 24-hour ultra-low emission zone, or the ULES, as we call it. When you drive into the zone, which is currently 21 square kilometers in central London, vehicles that exceed a particular emission standard, which is very tough, pay a fee to drive into the city. The zone's going to expand to 360 square kilometers later this year, and then it will cover most of London. And a lot of this can be done just through some of the you know, technological progress that's happened over the last few years, for instance, in sensors being able to work out which car is where and so on. So the technology has obviously helped, you know, to implement the, the emission zones um, and the consecutive tightening of standards. But people might wonder what's so special about this. You know, a rich city has access to good technology and can make their drivers pay because they can afford to. Um, and I think you get that a lot when you work in London or on topics related to London, that what you're doing just isn't replicable. Well, for the prize, we're interested in what is replicable. And I actually think that's wrong. I think there's a lot to be learned about the case of London. You know, once you look beyond a few obvious surface features, you you can start, for example, with how do you build towards a tipping point for collective action? So today, the ultra-low emission zone enjoys high levels of public and political support. But that wasn't always the case. So public opinion only shifted after the implementation of the first zone congestion charge in 2003. And before then, there was actually not that much support for it. And that came only a decade after the Great Smog of 1952, during which you know over 10,000 people died. I think looking at the work that has gone into making everyone really understands the health case and the economic case is very important. How the administrations consecutively have worked with the scientific community and technology providers, as well as local stakeholder groups to build public awareness. There's also a key lesson that you can't just come in with a market solution, which is what the ultra low emission zone essentially is. You can't just disincentivize pollution without also making investments at the same time. So in this case, a lot has gone into building up the public transport system, a lot of investment in walking and cycling infrastructure, and then making sure that those who are affected by the policy can have funds to upgrade their vehicles and that there's viable alternatives. So it's actually much more than just a clean air zone. It's a whole system of measures designed to work with each other. And that's really smart. And that principle is highly replicable. Not only will the expansion have air quality benefits, it's also going to help reduce carbon emissions and help address the climate emergency in London. And on to the final one of the finalists, and that's Rosario down in Argentina. Rosario is the third largest city in Argentina. It's a delta city, and it has a population about one million. And to understand the challenges facing this city, you have to go back to 2001, 
when the national economy in Argentina collapsed and a quarter of Rosario's workforce was suddenly unemployed. That's staggering. Suddenly, half the city's population dropped below the poverty line and couldn't afford food. And then more recently, and this is this was happening at the time, but has accelerated, another crisis has been looming beneath the surface, namely that climate change is heating up the city and its wider region and making rainfall less predictable, which leads to both flooding and fires in the River Delta. So partly this seems to be a, a food security problem for many people connected to the kind of economic background. And then you have these other environmental risks that seem to be growing. That seems like quite a, quite a difficult combination of factors to deal with. Uh, how, how did they respond? To deal with these various, you know, one's a historical and one's a contemporary crisis, the municipality of Rosario developed a program to generate new economic opportunities as well as addressing climate risks. So this program is called the Urban Agriculture Program. It very basically gives low-income residents access to unused land that they can use for agroecological food cultivation. That is using no pesticides and for local food consumption and according to traditional farming methods. And what they did was first to identify vacant and abandoned land within the city, like along railroads or highways or in flood-prone areas where no one wants to build, and train low-income residents in these farming methods, provide them with startup materials like seeds and gardening tools, and then, once the soil is cultivated, also open up municipal markets so that these growers can connect and sell their products to local residents. We have markets, we also have large orders that we deliver, and above all, we consume and we produce. Is this uh, replicable or is, or is this just something that, that worked extremely well in Rosario? From the perspective of the prize, we're always um, identifying the replicability of things. And so one thing that struck us about this one was that, you know, it's, it's very powerful that in the age of global supply chains, food through this urban and peri-urban agriculture is actually a critical but often overlooked part of cities' resilience. It's particularly true in times of crises like the one Know, the world is, is just witnessing where supply chains contract and there's a real need to be local. And we've seen that in many different supply chains, including food. It seems to me the future generations will have a better quality of life here. They live longer, they will get along better and enjoy what they do. And that contributes to the happiness of the whole family. One thing that struck us is that there's a theme of nature and what role nature plays in the city. So here in Rosario, nature is an environmental infrastructure. It buffers against climate heat and flooding, but it's also a social infrastructure and an economic one. Again, the theme of sort of hardwiring resilience into the city including through, you know, impacts that it has on shrinking carbon footprints, creating jobs and generating social inclusion is, is quite remarkable and definitely replicable. And what surprised you about Rosario? What, what was it that really caught your attention with this? One of the really remarkable things is that there's the longevity of the program, of this urban agriculture program, which flies in the face of a policy world very often obsessed with novelty we don't tend to think of municipal bureaucracies as flexible, quite the opposite. 
And here we have this urban agriculture program that sends this message about how you can have continuity in your political agenda, but also evolve an existing program over time as a city faces new problems. So from economic crisis to climate risks, and it's still relevant and it's still very powerful in addressing both of these. Well, all five of those finalists sound quite remarkable, all in their own different ways. Can you tell us just a little bit more about what's going to happen next? When is the actual winner of these five? Uh, When is that going to be announced? And where can people find out more information if they want to know about them in more detail? Yeah, sure. So you can always check out more details on the prizes website, which is www.prizeforcities.org. O-R-G. There's everything is on there, including some really, really wonderful videos about each of the finalists. We will be hosting an awards ceremony in a virtual format on the 29th of June at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. Um, hopefully this will make it accessible to many, many time zones. We will announce the grand prize winner who will be awarded $250,000 and the runners up. But most of all, we will be celebrating and elevating all of these finalists because we believe that they could all be winners. And that was Anne Masson, global lead for the WRI Roth Center Prize for Cities. You can find out more, including videos of each of the finalists and plenty more about them and the competition at prizeforcities.org. The winner will be announced at the end of June 2021. We've lots more on WRI's work on cities and urban areas on this podcast, including road safety and the need for clean air. Go to wri.org slash podcasts or dig us out on any of your favourite podcast apps. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>